um, somebody suggested this and I've seen it now online and everything, but, um, that I think of myself as one of my friends, what would I do for one of my friends? How do I think about my friends? And, oh, I just love them. I would give them everything that's, you know, gift giving is my love language. So, um, I'm trying to apply that to myself now. This is Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Diana. This episode was recorded on December 1, 2022. This this episode is a tough one. Um, I just learned a couple of days ago, which I guess will be about two weeks from when this is released, that Diana died. Uh, pretty suddenly, of an aneurysm. Um, that was a shock. She was, she was, she is someone who was um, very loved in my recovery community. She was known well as someone who was funny and delightful and a bit scatterbrained. Um, very kind person and I'm I'm sad that I never got to meet her in person I, I actually only met her online but yeah I'm I am glad to say that she did die in Mexico I believe she died painlessly and she was surrounded by family and the love of those who couldn't be there I'm also just very <laughs> Sounds funny to say, but I'm very relieved that she died of natural causes, not because of suicide, uh, which she struggled with. Um, she struggled with suicidality, I think, until the day she died. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to link to this, her website. She worked in suicide prevention. So, yeah, she did a lot of good work. Yeah, I'm really glad that she she lived as long as she did, which was far longer than her multiple attempts um, were focusing on. Yeah, um, I'm really glad that I got this opportunity to get to know her and to speak to her. I feel honored to have this piece of her story that I can keep. Um, and that we can all listen to. Yeah, in this, she she's just very honest and very open and, you know, talks freely about her own journey with suicidality and with, you know, body image stuff, with weight, and how she continues to struggle with caring for her body. 
content warnings for talk about fat phobia, colorism, physical and sexual abuse, as well as self-harm and suicidality. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair. So I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Diana. All right, so first question, how do you and I know each other? Well, we met, I'm trying to think what, how many years it's been, but through, uh, we're both in sexual recovery and through a program. Yeah, I think, I think I didn't meet you until at least a year into my time. Because mm. I know okay. you had been away, at least away from the gathering that I was going to and possibly from the program overall. Was that in 2019? Because I did go to Hawaii and um, I was, I don't know how I was um, kept myself uh, close to program. Because, yeah, even um, then I was very, very busy. I went down there to help some family members and it took all of my energy and all of my strength. So I think that's when you came in. Yeah. I'm not sure. I started, I tar- I started 2019. So I might not have met you until later in 2020. Yep, yep. Because then by then I moved to uh, Mexico. Well, I didn't mean to move to Mexico, but the pandemic made me move to Mexico. And that's when I started getting back into meetings online. Was after you moved? After I got back to Mexico, yeah. Got to Mexico. I came down for a wedding and had to stay because of the pandemic and definitely was missing my program and my peeps. So I um, started getting online and having that's when zoom actually I think started taking over for meetings and so I was so grateful to be able to see faces that I knew and to meet new people like Christelle and you are in Mexico now as well I am again yes I find that I'm drawn down here um, just because I'm from Mexico, but also in this case, it was a medical and emotional kind of, uh, um, I came down to recuperate. I haven't been feeling really well, so Mm. So I'm down here. I have family down here and uh, things are a lot less expensive medically, so I'm able to, it's better Mm. for me. Mm. So I am, I am. Mm. Yeah, I think that sort of leads into the second question, which is, how would you introduce yourself? What do you think is important um, for other people to know about you? Hmm, that's a good question. And I guess it depends where or who I was talking to, but mostly what's really important to me in my life right now is um, my work. I work in suicide prevention and share my own lived experience, which I would have never thought I would have done. Those were the darkest days of my life. I had five attempts. But now to be able to help others with that, that's what brings me purpose now in my life. And so um, 
everything else kind of falls behind that for me, um, which is family. I love family, and that's why I'm down here, too. And uh, my sexual recovery, all my recovery, I have several programs I'm in, and um, it's just given me a new lead on life. You know, I've been able to have a almost feels like a rebirth and um, from everything. So I'm so grateful for that. I'm able to live a life that um, is worth living to me and helping others. It's always been a big thing for me. So it's been really nice that I, I get that chance to do that again. Yeah, there's so many things in what you just said, you know, about about mental health and about recovery. And I'm trying to debate whether or not to ask questions now <laughs> about those things or or wait till the next section. But um, I, I get it. There is really complicated, but um, I am an open book now, even about I didn't mention my um other addiction but I've been sober for 10 years um, from alcohol and if it hadn't been for a recovery uh, again I wouldn't be able to share any of it because I wouldn't be here probably and if I was I wasn't functioning for sure so um Mm. yeah I'm very open about it now because um anything that anybody can glean from my experience I want to put out there because I know that when I was going through it any help I could have got would have been really um, appreciated. I, I do appreciate what did happen and how I got to where I'm at now. So I don't think I was expecting your work to be the first, like the, you said that everything else sort of falls behind that. Um, and I guess that makes sense given that it is such personal work. It is about who you are and who you have been. When did you start doing that work? Um, When I first got done with therapy, because the therapy that really helped me, I've been in therapy all my life, mostly all my adult life for sure. Um, But the therapy that actually helped me progress, um, DBT, after I finished that, I did it for two years. Usually it's a year therapy, mm-hmm. but um, I did it for two years. And after um, I was done, my therapist just said, it's so funny, I always share with everybody that um, the way she caught me was, she said, I have a friend who's a psychologist who needs help with a focus group for Facebook, and they're giving a $100 gift certificate. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll do it for the $100, never knowing that it was going to change my life. So that's how I started in 2000, I think it was 2015. So it's been a few years now. And um, yeah, it was just amazing how it's progressed and what it's turned into. So was the focus group for DBT or was it for something else? It was uh, for Facebook. They were doing... um, I think they still have it. They're doing some part of their um, a program where you can like tag people on there if you see a comment. Because what had happened is several people had died by suicide mm-hmm. and had reached out kind of on Facebook and their friends didn't realize that that was what they were doing or mm-hmm. what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up dying by suicide. So Facebook wanted to, uh, together with the University of Washington, which... This psychologist, who now is my mentor and, and dear friend, um, 
was working with them in association with the UW and DBT. They were trying to get this program where you could tag somebody, um, their comment and, or somehow flag it. And so, um, they could look into different ways of helping them, either reaching out themselves mm. uh, or having a therapist even reach out different ones. So what they had us do in the focus group is come in, look at the, um, the, with the part that they were doing and see if that would attract us or would help us mm. or what we, if we could go back to our suicidal uh, crisis and see how we would look at that application or, or that process um, through those eyes so that we could help them build it and it become more accurate. And I'm not kidding you. They were just like, so I don't know if they even knew what they were asking for mm-hmm. and that somebody could provide that. Cause I know that when they, um, they actually came out from behind the scenes and said, your, you know, work or your words today are going to change this program. And yeah, you mm-hmm. know, it's so helpful. So my uh, mentor mm-hmm. said, um, Diana, have you thought about sharing your story? And what do you think about videos? And, I was very um, surprised. I just wanted my little $100 gift certificate, but it started a whole new part of my life. And I think the purpose to my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I've worked in the mental health field and done suicide assessments and have, you know, gone to training for suicide assessments. And then on and off during most of my life, I've been suicidal myself. And then a couple of years ago, uh, was, was actively suicidal and ended up going to the psych hospital for that. And through that experience, I really learned that all of these suicide assessment trainings that I'd gone to were utter bullshit. And I was like, this is not helpful. Those questions are not helpful. And also, I don't like that I feel under threat. If, I, if I'm being assessed for suicide, I, you know, I don't want to be forced to go to the hospital. I don't want to do this or that. Um, and I'll also say that, you know, you may know this yourself, but it, it's not a pleasant experience <laughs> to go to the hospital. So I, I really admire your work. And, you know, having someone who's actually experienced it be able to talk about it is so helpful. Thanks. Yeah, I was in the system, Eden, um, 30 years mm. in and out of hospitals at different ones. Um, you know, when I speak to doctors or, or hospitals, organizations nowadays, um, they get pretty defensive. But one of the things I tell them is that, I learned a lot from that. And that's why I'm able to speak about it now and tell them exactly um, details about what worked and what didn't work. Because, yeah, I was re-traumatized and traumatized anew from some of those experiences. I mean, Mm -hmm. as it is, you're going in for suicidality and um, or an attempt like me. uh, So you don't need any more stuff happening to you. So when you're traumatized at the hospital, I mean, it's just horrible it's just uh added more trauma to it's already a horrifying um you know experience so 
That's why um, a lot of people ask me why I don't work directly with people individually. And I do sometimes. I definitely do help wherever I can with friends and acquaintances or somebody that they know that's struggling. But mostly I do system work because I really do want to change the system as much as possible. Um, because, yeah, if we save somebody's life and then we're like, oh, great, we saved you. Now go to the hospital and get re-traumatized and die there, you know. Because I actually, the very first time I had my very first attempt and went to the hospital, I actually had hope. I thought that they were, I thought, oh, finally, I get to go to the hospital. They're going to know what to do there because my therapist didn't, my doctor didn't. And then was super disappointed. I know why now the statistic is that people die by suicide, a lot of them right after they get out of the hospital, because mm-hmm. I'm sure they're disappointed and they don't want to go back there. So, yeah, it's a lot of work, but you know what? It's given me a purpose. And I think that's why I survived. I really do. I think that's what I'm here for. So um, even though it's a tragic thing and a, a complicated subject, I'm really happy to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get more into that as we continue to talk. Um, I'll, I'll get to this, the meaty question, which is how do you relate to your body and how do your experiences and different identities influence that relationship? Wow. Wow. What a powerful question. That is probably the most profound question you could ask me about my body, even, um, thinking about suicidality and everything I've been through. My body has been a source of nothing but sheer um, conflict for me my whole life. I did go through a workshop just recently, a wonderful workshop, that had me identify a very early trauma that I went through that involved enemas and my my dad. And um, Mm. I realized until I did that workshop that that was probably one of the very first times that my body was attacked and um, by somebody I loved. And um, I was forced to not want to feel what I was feeling, told it doesn't hurt, stop crying, stop. So I think that that's where all those things, I do believe, this is my new belief. I believe that we are born pretty much perfect. And then as things happen to us, that, it's so, uh, you know, messed up. So in that case, it was that, um, it happened to me. I, I think I was about three or four. Um, that's where it starts. You know, I don't know how much more before that, um, things had happened because that's my earliest memory. But, um, can you imagine things like that happening over and over and over as you grow? Um, so yeah, my body has been my biggest enemy mm-hmm. and my most painful, you know, feeling that I have. So it's been a really, really difficult time. Um, both sexually, I have struggles with eating. Um, you know, my mom for years and years told me, um, you're not hungry when I was, mm-hmm. or you're hungry when I wasn't. And I was actually physically punished for eating certain things. So I have this horrifying relationship with food, sugar specifically, but love-hate relationship that you know what I'm 57 and my parents are both on and I still struggle with it you know daily yeah so you know I, I I don't know what else to tell you about that body thing I just know that it's not what it's was supposed to be or what I'd like it to be even 
I'd like it to be who I am, part of me. I feel, I do feel like there's a spiritual, like soul part of me and then my body, but I'm just right now starting to integrate the two and to be able to accept my body as a positive thing. Um, I have not my whole entire life. So it's, it's a sad thing. Yeah. I was thinking these are about basic bodily processes. Uh, eating, using the bathroom, um, very intimate, very vulnerable, and from people in your life who are supposed to be safe and caring, and specifically actually helping you with those experiences, especially as a young child. So having that violated, betrayed, it's profoundly dehumanizing. That's a good word. It sets you up for a lifetime of, um, not only, I think it wouldn't be as, uh, uh, you know, affect me as much if it was just that I felt unhappy somehow or um, conflicted, but I still accepted my body, but I actually hate it. So how can you go through your whole life um, hating yourself? It's, it's the weirdest thing. It's just like, and fearful, very, very fear-based. Um, and I also don't think that that's a good way to live your life. So it's been, um, you know, quite a bit of, since I started recovery, actual recovery after DBT, um, it's been a big process of integrating who I am and um, not only loathing and not fearing, but actually loving myself. Oh, my God. That, to me, is just way over. I, I don't understand that concept. I love people, though. I love people so much. So it's helpful that I um, somebody suggested this, and I've seen it now online and everything, but um, that I think of myself as one of my friends. What would I do for one of my friends? How do I think about my friends? And, oh, I just love them. I would give them everything that's, you know, gift giving is my love language. So um, I'm trying to apply that to myself now. Yeah, because I feel like oftentimes we can be so much kinder to other people, our friends specifically, but then treat ourselves like shit. Completely, completely. I would never, ever, ever treat even an acquaintance, even a stranger, I don't think, um, as harshly as I do myself. Which is really tragic because, like I said, the people who um, did that to me when I was young and impressionable um, aren't here anymore. And I've even forgiven them, even when they were alive. And um, yet I can't give that, extend that kindness and that love to myself that's to me that's the tragic part and I think that's what suicidality and perhaps that's why I'm so involved in that um is all about I think that suicide is killing off of the person who I believe is least responsible for all these conflicts and all these you know bad habits and things that arise from trauma You know, what I was just thinking was, we usually talk about this in terms of domestic violence or sexual violence, but uh, blaming the victim. And it's what we do to ourselves a lot of the time. 
Well, that's a good way of thinking about it. Because, yeah, I'm totally against blaming the victim in any circumstance, but specifically in sexual abuse, child sexual abuse. And um, so, yeah, that's thank you for bringing that up because yeah. I could think of myself that way, too. Or blaming the survivor if you want to have a, mm-hmm. some more active language. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I haven't thought about that before, but it is what we do to ourselves when we attack ourselves either mentally or physically, uh, which I am very familiar with as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you mean like self-harm? Uh, self-harm in both the, you know, the way that you talk to yourself, mm-hmm. the way that you view yourself. And of course, there's the obvious, which is the way that you physically attack yourself. Mm-hmm. which can come in many forms. Like we, we tend to think of cutting or burning, but there's yeah. also, um, and I'll say that this is how I experience this because uh, I don't think everyone would say that, but I experience um, like skin picking and hair pulling. And for me, it is this way of, uh, either purifying or cleansing uh, or like trying to get rid of the skin, right? You're trying to get rid of the the part of you that protects you from, like it, it makes you really vulnerable to do that mm-hmm. to yourself. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ways that we can do this. Some are more socially acceptable than others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought it up because I always think of self-harm as cutting. I didn't realize people burn themselves, but I know cutting. I've actually had some family members who um, have experienced that. And so I've been kind of, um, I don't know what the word would be, but like happy that that's not something that I've uh, mm-hmm. been involved in. But now that you mention it, um, you know, even eating sugar when I know that it mm-hmm. makes me ill, physically ill, mm-hmm. And can have even worse consequences like blindness or amputation. And I continue to do that. That's still self-harm. So that's, wow, that's very interesting that um, I'm glad you brought that up too. So I can look at it through a different, um, you know, a different way and hopefully be. So that's what I say to myself. Why would I do something to myself that I know is bad for me? I just don't get it. Yeah. But I think that that's uh, that's a good way to look at it. Maybe. I remember when I started recovery, hearing about ways that um, that many people in their addictions don't take care of their their body or their mind. And for me, I realized, oh, yeah, I didn't go to a dentist for nine years. That's very common. Yeah. And it was wild to me when I actually wrote it down. Um, that wow. I was like, oh yeah, I didn't for nine years. I didn't go to a dentist. A lot of that was anxiety caused, but I think mm-hmm. also just it's really bad for you to not take care of your teeth. Uh, it will shorten your life if you mm-hmm. if you lose your a bunch of your teeth or things like that. So yeah yeah i had that issue too i had i kid you not because that's how i started coming down to mexico um 
was to get dental work, emergency mm-hmm. dental work. And one of the times I came down, the dentist said, I don't know how you're mm-hmm. alive. You have like 20 infections in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And you know how sensitive our mouth is? To me, there's no pain like dental pain. And so he was just like, he said, the fact that you went up in the air and you didn't get that, um, you know, your whole face blow up or something from just so many infections. I mean, he was, he said he'd never seen anybody in that condition. And I had thought that it was because um, I had some trauma at the dentist when I was little. But no, I think now that our mouth, as well as our other parts of our body, some more than others, is very intimate mm-hmm. and very sensitive. So, yeah, I think it evolves more than just, um, you know, not taking care, not self-care yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of judgment from dentists. I don't know if you've experienced that, but a lot of judgment of, mm-hmm. oh, you haven't done yeah. this or that. Why, why aren't you flossing? And actually the reason I went to a dentist was that I I saw an ad that said, do you have anxiety when going to see the dentist? Basically saying, you know, we we try to be like very caring and non-judgmental. I was like, sign me up. So that was why I went after nine years was because of an ad, which I usually am against. But in this case, it was useful to me. So. Yeah, I guess, again, I didn't, I'm so glad we're talking because that's another thing I didn't think about. I didn't think about the actual, that's the least thing I asked about or thought about, even though I was embarrassed <laughs> when, you know, he said, hey, you haven't flossed ever in your life or whatever, but um, no more so the pain, the physical part, I was so fearful of, no matter who. I, I got to the point where I would take um, a relaxer to and now that I'm in sobriety where I don't take any mind-altering drugs, it's really hard for me to go to the dentist. I need to have my Tylenol or Advil or whatever um, ready because I, um, yeah, very anxious, very anxious. I still have problems with that. And I'm still working on my teeth, yeah. but it's gotten better. You know, something I found interesting, you know, when you were – starting to talk about the trauma that you experienced in your childhood from your family, who who you said um, both your parents have passed now. But then also part of the pull back to Mexico is family. Um, now, obviously, it's not your parents, but yeah, it was all of you. You obviously have positive interactions with some of your family members then. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes up and down. Um, I have six, five siblings. I'm the sixth and, um, we have different, we've gone through different things. I've been, I was single until I was 40. So I was kind of like, and I'm a middle child. So I was, I would go to my siblings, um, homes when they needed me. Um, whether it would be because, um, for my sisters, most of the time it's when they had a baby. And so I'd come over and help clean and help take care of the other kids if they had other kids. If their husbands, they had uh, divorced or separated, then I kind of took, you know, a bigger role and even moved in with them sometimes. So we have this um, pretty close relationship I have with my family members. That's one of the reasons why I'm down here, because one of my sisters, the youngest, her and I are really, really close. We have a lot of the same beliefs and values. So that helps. So she's um, here. She's been able to help me with my dental 
And now with my emotional, because um, I thought once I was mistaken when I um, first got uh, into recovery after I did that um, focus group and everything, I was on this high for like mm. in um, in some 12-step groups, they call it pink cloud. I was on a pink cloud for years. And I thought that I would never, ever um, have a dark day again. And of course, I was mistaken. That's part of being human, mm -hmm. I think, is to have pain. But I don't think it's part of being human to have to suffer. So um, she's helped me with that, with all of that. She's been very, very kind and um, loving. She's the one who took me to rehab when I did not want to face that I was an alcoholic. And... Um, so she's been there. So we're really close. And I'm still close with the other family members. Unfortunately, we grew up a religion that um, excommunicates people if they're not religions. A couple of my family members were not were uh, estranged because of that, because of religion. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know that when you've talked about that before, it was really difficult. I think you said something about on Facebook, you, you lost a large number of friends when you like were 70. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you came out about yeah. not being part of that religion anymore. Yeah. And that's so hard because that's not only hard as a person who's a people pleaser and loves people, but it's also hard because, um, you know, religion is such a personal thing. Uh, for me, I grew up this religion. I was indoctrinated from a very young age, about five, and I believed in it. Mm -hmm. And so to find out, first of all, for myself, that I didn't believe those things anymore, and it had been basically I felt lied to my whole life. Mm -hmm. It was difficult for me to go through that myself. But, yeah, then that meant if I decided to leave that, and still I have the repercussions. Now we just went to go visit a cousin the other night, and my sister and I, my sister still of the religion, and I'm not – you know, kind of had a debate in front of everybody, in front of all our family members about um, our beliefs, because mm -hmm. I was, we were invited to a Christmas party and my sister said, yeah, yeah I can't take yeah. part in that. And I said, I can take part in that because I'm, I'm no longer. So it's a big deal, religion and how it affects you. I'm so social. I miss my, I know mm -hmm. you and I have had um, conversations yeah. about your um, beliefs in association with an organization, a religious organization. And I miss, I miss all that association. And I mean, they were most of my friends, if not all of my friends were that religion. Mm. And so to lose them all in like a day. Yeah. It's just hard. Yeah. I'm glad that you still seem to have some relationships with family members, even mm. though they're, they're still part of that religion. Yeah, I was very surprised because basically it's on their side. They're the ones who, because when you're that religion, they teach you that you don't speak, even speak, not even a hello mm. to a family member who is um, no longer of that religion. Because you're kind of trying to punish them and get them back. If that makes <laughs> any sense. <laughs> um, but no, my sister, this one, because um, we had a sister pass. Mm. So I think that that affected her change because she was very judgmental, and which I was too when I was that religion. Yeah, I didn't speak to the sister that passed for over a year because of mm. my beliefs. And so um, 
Now, this sister, uh, I totally would respect if she decided not to, but she's decided that um, we can have some sort of association. Like we went out the other night mm-hmm. with our cousin. So I'm grateful for the, those moments and whatever I can get out of mm-hmm. our association. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a difficult one too. Yeah. Having had some experience with estrangement from from family, it is they they call it cutting off, and it does really feel like that. I like that. Yep, it does feel like that exactly. And whether or not it's your choice to do that or the other person's choice, it is still this. It does feel like a physical response a violent physical response i agree i agree it does i think of a tree or even a plant when i try to cut off the dried leaves um sometimes they're still clinging i don't know what they have in there still maybe some kind alive even though they look yellow and um sometimes i just leave them but sometimes i go ahead and pull it off and i'm like that was so mean that felt violent the poor little guy and so yeah could you imagine if a a, a plant or a, a tree, we would feel that way, how a human would mm. take it even. Because we have not only feelings, physical feelings, but emotions that go with that too. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a good way of looking at it. I was curious. So, did you grow up in Mexico or did you grow up in America or both? We had the funniest life. And you know what? When I was, obviously, when you're growing up in it, you think that that's just life, that everybody has experienced the things that you have. But sometimes, even with my really close friends, I'll be mentioning one of our experiences here in Mexico, mostly. And they'll look at me like, uh, wow, <laughs> who has lived that and survived and to tell it? But um, so what happened is uh, when I was um, probably about nine months old, uh, I was a baby. My mom uh, was going to leave my father and uh, ended up wanting to go as far away as possible. And so she asked a friend, I don't know where he was from specifically, but uh, uh, the Pacific Northwest is where he brought her to, which was, you know, as far from Mexico as possible that Mm. he got anyway. And so, yeah, we ended up in the Pacific Northwest and um, without my father at first. But then he followed shortly after they got back together. And um, that's how we ended up. So I was very young. I don't remember much of, uh, you know, getting there. Mm. But then when I was about nine years old, Mm. my one brother, because we didn't know anything about when you're a child, you don't know anything about legality and Mm. country or any of that. So um, my brother went to Canada. He was, my oldest brother is a lot older than me. So I think he might've been 18, maybe 16, but he ended up going to Canada with no, you know, uh, passport or anything. And on his way back, he, they were like, okay, well, are you, you a citizen or I guess, I don't know what they ask. And he was like, no, I think I'm from Mexico, you know? Mm-hmm. And they ended up finding out that we were in the Northwest, um, illegally. Mm-hmm. So at the way they did it at that time, thank goodness, isn't anything like they do it now. They came to the house, verified, found out that, yes, we were, the whole family was there illegally. And they gave us a month 
to move back to Mexico, mm. which was just harrowing for us kids. Because even though we'd moved around a lot when we were younger um, in the States, we'd never been, mm. uh, we'd been to Mexico, but we definitely had never lived there. Yeah. And we did know that we had family there, that that's where we were from. We understood Spanish, but we didn't speak it. But to get, have to move there, move our whole life, no friends, no anything, um, was very traumatic. So we ended up being in Mexico for three years trying to immigrate. And then on the third year, they, they gave us our um, immigration. So we moved back to the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. um, legally this time. And then I continued my, you know, our lifestyle there, mm-hmm. both through school and, and work and everything. So, yeah, so I guess from, I'm kind of from, it's weird. I, we always say we're from both places, but we're from neither because yeah. unfortunately you don't fit in, <laughs> in either in the uh, Northwest in the States, we were seen as very different. We were dark and, um, you know, had a different lifestyle, a huge family. Mm-hmm. All my friends were, you know, like one or two <laughs> and blonde, a little uh, string beans, my friends. And in Mexico, we didn't speak Spanish. So they thought we were faking it the whole time. They were at, We actually got disciplined at school mm-hmm. because we could understand it, but we couldn't speak it, which is very strange. I don't know how the mind does oh, that. It's very common. Um, as, oh, is it? Um, I know. So I, I have a similar experience to you, um, not in terms of of like the legality and, and, and skin tone and things like that. But in terms of living in a few different countries growing up and not fitting. So I grew up in Russia and then Ukraine and then in America every four years. Um, And so I never fit in any of them. Oh no. And my, my Russian was never great. I was technically, I think bilingual as a young child but then we moved to America for a year and I lost it and it was very difficult to get back. But I understand quite a lot, but it's more difficult to speak because it's hard to gather the words and more importantly, the grammar. So just so you know, that's not, uh, that's not uncommon. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. I forget that you're, um, I don't know if you consider yourself from a different country, but that you had any experience of a Russia or yeah. Ukraine. I forget that because yeah, you can't tell in your the way you speak English. So um, yeah, that whole not fitting in thing. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, my my parents are American, so oh, they are. yeah. Oh, okay, so it was like a military lifestyle. Missionary. They were missionaries. They are missionaries. Oh, missionaries. Yeah. oh wow. <gasps> Talk about religion. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very specific type of childhood. Um, yeah. I was wondering, and you know, just when you said, you know, you were disciplined for simply for, for not knowing the language and, you know, it made you look like you were, you were purposefully being disruptive you know, that's really tough for, you know, I just remember when I would get in trouble in school when I was young, which happened very rarely, but it was horrifying. Yeah, yeah, it was because not only are you already singled out because you're not from there, you're new, you know how um, tough kids can be on each other. Um, so I had all that going on. Then the teacher would uh, spank us with a ruler, mm-hmm. not speaking Spanish and say, you know, you look 
they'd even say, um, I don't remember what words they would use, but you know, you look Mexican, you know, we know you're Mexican. Mm. So don't, don't speak Spanish. And we'd be like, okay, you know, we're trying, trying hard. And the good thing is that children pick it up very quickly, like you were saying, um, and lose it quickly if they don't use it. But um, so we picked up Spanish and I still to this day speak, mm. read and write Spanish. So I'm grateful for that experience in a way. But it didn't need to happen that specific way. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of things that even moving around a lot and being put into um, a whole different culture, I I can see good things from that I got from it. Like one of the things is that I can make friends with basically anybody. But it also has a negativity that I usually pretty much wear a mask in front of everybody. I don't even know who I really am. Mm. So that's really hard. Mm. Yeah. Sounds familiar as well. Yeah. How bad. I did not know, realize that mm-hmm. you had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of good and a lot of bad and it makes you who you are. So it it's hard to imagine my life differently. Yeah. Um, but Yeah, I was thinking with all that's been going on the last few years in America and the conversation of immigration, um, I know for me, it's been really frustrating when people talk about, you know, the issue of homosexuality, um, you know, or or anything in that world um, as if. I'm like, hey, I'm a person, not not a topic of conversation, mm-hmm. but like, you know, the topic of immigration and specifically um, illegal immigration has been, let's just say, very excitable in the last few years. What has that experience been like for you? Yeah, Um One of the things I don't know if you've noticed since you met me is um, I changed the color of my hair. Mm -hmm. I never thought that was um, that it was because it was affected by my life was affected any different way. But now that I've been actually with a microscope kind of um, or, uh, you know, just really, really trying to see who I am inside and live that. Um, I find that I try to blend in. Mm. I try to blend in as much as possible. And that might be one of the reasons why as an immigrant we had, I do remember having um, issues like one of them when we laugh about it, because I do laugh mostly about all my negative things that have happened to me, including at one point I used to laugh about the, um, what I told you about the trauma with the, um, the enemas. Yeah. I used to laugh about that. We we make a joke, but now I'm I'm trying to be very mindful of that's not funny. Mm. That was something horrifying that happened to me. And so, but one of the things that um I do find funny that we always joke about is that I um tried to uh blend in. I never spoke about the fact that I just recently started speaking about the fact that our family was illegal mm. because it is such a horrifying thing the way people treat it. And um, the things that are coming out now, like with the kids being separated from their parents, I can't even imagine. We didn't have any of that experience. We didn't travel. Even to get here, we didn't travel through the desert uh, where we could be killed and yeah. stuff like that. But um, it does affect me. But I think that I have 
in my lifetime tried to uh, get invisible as invisible as I mm. can. And I think it comes maybe from that, from the, mm. the uh, root of um, trying to blend into America. But a coincidence that I make my hair lighter, you know, um, I don't blend in so much physically because of my weight and my size. I'm a big person. So even when I want to disappear, I really can't. Mm. But pretty much every other way, I try to just live a life of please don't notice me. Mm. And um, and so that changes who I really am because I'm a, that kind of a person. Uh, thank goodness my voice was never um, turned completely off. I still have that inner voice who says who I am and what I like, but I don't share it very often. I am more and more now, but, um, but it was pretty almost extinguished. Mm. Um, because I got to the point where I couldn't decide if I wanted a seven up or a Coke, unless I thought you mm. thought I should have one of the two, you know, but so, yeah, it affected me, our immigration status and what's coming up now. Yeah. There's a lot of fear. I just got my citizenship last year and uh, when Trump was in uh, office and there was um, more focus on that, uh, I think there was some fear in me. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I grew up in the States and um, definitely wanted to be that to be my my allegiance or alliance. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's sad that um, oftentimes you have to choose. Yeah. Yeah. There are some rare cases where people sort of sneaky have dual citizenship. No, I, I have heard that. I think that usually one country doesn't recognize it though. There will be yeah. There'll be one country that is okay with it and the other one that is not. Mm -hmm. As if we can't be right to from two places or yeah. have multiple identities within ourselves. Who makes up uh borders anyway? I mean, I'm so I would never probably protest just because of my personality and what I just mentioned about being trying to fit in. But I just think to myself inside that um, who made up borders and the rules about where you're supposed to live and where you're born and, you know, humans. So I'm not so, you know, specifically focused on that. Yeah, I'll follow the rules, but. When you were talking about trying to blend in. Um, I'm going to use a word that can be difficult and, and I don't even know what I think about this word, uh, but the idea of passing, you know, trying to pass as, you know, for me trying to pass as a, as a woman or, or something like that to be safe mm -hmm. or to, to pass as someone who is straight. Um, and I, I can, cause I'm married to a man and I seem to be a woman and, and things like that. Um, I was wondering what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought about it specifically put my mind on it, but you know, just yesterday we went to the grocery store here and after I ended up, um, not yesterday, but the other day, got my wallet and my, um, uh, phone stolen. And so one of the things we, we've been talking about is that one of the things is they notice that I'm not from around here. Mm. Um, even when I speak Spanish, my Spanish is different. Mm. Not only do I not know all the words, but um, I have an accent, you know. So um, 
It's interesting. Yesterday I went to the store and the person that was helping me with one of the products that I was asking for um, asked me in English. And I thought, wait a minute, aren't we in Mexico? And mm. I'm Mexican. Why isn't he asking me in Spanish? But you know what? I almost had this feeling, and I'm only confessing it because we're talking about it and I'm, I'm looking into it. I almost had this like happy feeling that he confused me for American. Mm. And that's something that goes way back to our culture and our, my parents for sure, if not ancestors um they look up to americans americans are mm. better than mm. mexicans to my family members for sure coloring if you were light-skinned which i am lighter of my siblings um and now with my hair uh then that's a good thing if you have colored eyes mm. oh my god you're practically a god you know mm. so um even though my eyes are brown, it was lighter. And so this man confused me yesterday. So that's so sad to me to think that I don't want to be what I am, Mexican, you know, speak Spanish and all of it. So it's been hard. And now that we're talking about it, I think it goes back to the whole, I don't accept myself for anything that I am, for being a woman. Because I, I was always, I was, t I'm taller than my sisters and heavier. My sisters are all under five foot, all of them, and they're all under 100 pounds, or at least they were when we were younger. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't the feminine one. Mm -hmm. So my parents treated me as almost as a boy. They, um, you know, if there was anything heavy to carry in from the groceries, Diana always got it. If there was any hard work at home, Diana did it because she wasn't delicate and feminine as her sisters. Mm -hmm. So um, that's always affected me. I, um, you know, so I don't, none of who I am have I been able to accept? Mm. So I guess it makes sense that I wouldn't be so um, happy about being Mex Mexican, but, um, and, or that I would feel good about being passing as, and I don't like trouble. I don't like mm. conflict of any kind. So if I can go under the radar, then I'm happy. Do you feel that that is true when you're in America? Yeah. Oh Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm a big size and I, um, I didn't have a car for a long time. So when I'd go on, tr uh, public transportation, I remember just wanting to blend in, just almost be invisible, try to get as small as I can. And I can't get very small cause I'm a big girl, but, um, I tried. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And definitely, um, you know, when this whole COVID thing started and people were up in arms about a vaccination and everything, I was just like, please don't talk to me or ask me any questions, you know? And I knew I was going to get vaxxed, not because I believed in it, but because I'm a rule follower. I do mm. not want anybody to point me out or to judge me or anything. So, and part of that, I think, is from the religion I grew up to. Because mm. even though they're not a very, um, not everybody is that religion. A lot of people criticize it for a lot of things. One of it being the fact that they don't celebrate anything. Um, they taught us very strongly indoctrinated us to follow the yeah. rules, follow their rules and don't ask questions. If you had any questions right away, they, you know, start accusing you of being on the devil's side or whatever. So, yeah. So I've pretty much been trained. It's hard to be break, breaking out of the shell at 57 mm -hmm. because my whole life has been of, Conforming, 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 and um, not to who I was or am. Yeah, I, I can relate. I can relate to a number of those things. You know, several times now you have, you have mentioned your size 
and that it makes it hard for you to blend in. And I know that you talked about having trouble with eating as well. Would you mind talking about that? Not at all. Like I said, right now I'm an open book eating about um, what I'm going through, I think, to help others, but also to help myself really be able to question things and um, get down to who I really am. And if I feel bad about something, including my weight, um, to find out what, what's going on there for me mm. and why I behave that way and how I can get to the point where I feel better about myself and can actually care for myself. So, yeah, no, I don't mind if you have any specific questions or what what were you thinking about me talking about my body? Mm. Um, well, I think, you know, a lot of focus on um, bigness and you know that you were you were taller and at least seemingly stronger and and more quote unquote masculine than your sisters um and then also way more and you know just one the inability to blend in and two um the way people view women who are larger I'm I'm guessing that that must have been difficult and that perhaps mm-hmm. that is still difficult. It is. It really is. I was telling my mentor that if all, if anything I could change right now that I'm in such a good place, especially about my suicide prevention work, because I do feel like I'm help, helping, um, would be my weight. That I wish that I looked like I feel sometimes really healthy and way better than I was and I don't. And so she was really helpful to me. She's thin and, and beautiful, this um, friend of mine and mentor. And she said, Diana, you know what? If you were any different than what you are right now in looks, in personality and anything, how would you know that you would uh, bring, be able to help as many people as you do? The people that identify with you, identify with you for who you are, for your mm-hmm. authenticity. So that helps me so much to think of it that way because, yeah, I've struggled my whole life with it. I'm most of my life. I've gone down to a certain weight and gotten all this admiration, especially from men. Mm-hmm. And I had a sexual, I have sexual abuse trauma um, from my childhood. So that is intertwined. Um, I'm only accepted and loved and just really uh, appreciated when I look a certain way. Mm. I'm like, what the hell is that all about? You know, um, I want to be accepted for for everything that I am, how I got here and everything. But I don't accept myself that way. So mm. I really think to myself, how can I expect others to? In fact, others accept me way more than I mm. do myself about my weight. My weight is a big deal. I feel self-conscious about it. I feel like um, my relationships are affected, not just the male, female ones, but um, even my uh, friendships. I feel like, and I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel like it's, it's a, um, it's an issue Mm -hmm. and sure the male thing. I mean, whenever I did lose weight, I lost weight a lot um, through my young adulthood trying to kind of get together with somebody and find somebody who could love me. And mm. I just remember when I would get close to my uh, ideal weight, uh, men just would come out of the woodwork. And I was super scared when that mm. would happen. Um, you know, 
when they were trade. I didn't have a boyfriend, um, a actual boyfriend, all my life until when I got married. And the person I married basically married me for trying to get uh, immigrate. He was Mexican and trying to get his papers. I didn't understand that to be the case till afterwards. But so yeah, my body. I feel so bad for it because mm. it's been an issue for me and. Um, and with society, you know how they are so harsh about weight mm-hmm. that um, they hate. I feel like society hates fat people, and I hate fat people. So, and I'm a fat person, mm-hmm. so not nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the the use of that word "fat." I mean, you know, there's some people who have uh, reclaimed it, but so often it that's not the way that it's used and you can hear it. You can hear in the way that it's used uh, that it's, it's a term of hate. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is. I won't even go into social media. I mean, social media is ridiculous. I had never even came up with the concept of cyberbullying, but so, yeah, I've seen people body shame, like people who are of average weight, and I'm like, I don't even want to go into, you know, <laughs> somebody who's overweight. Oh, my God. Or obese. That word obese is just like, oh, my God. So, yeah, that's a harsh one because I can't really change. I can um, somewhat, but it's very difficult for me to change it um, in my life. And so I'm going to have that, um, at least for the near future, as something I fight against daily. So, mm-hmm. That's hard. I I was noticing the um the interplay between trauma, r- sex or romance and your weight and mm. I know I don't remember which book I read this in, maybe it was a couple of different books about trauma about how someone was working with a client on weight and they lost all of this weight. And they're like excited for their client. And then not long afterwards, the client came back and was um, like had gained all the weight back, maybe more. And what they realized was, oh, we didn't think about the fact that this person has sexual trauma. And suddenly they weren't safe anymore. They didn't feel safe anymore. And that's what I hear from you is that except that in your case, it's even more complicated because you you desire companionship but then you you become afraid as well mm-hmm. yeah oh it's super complicated I remember when people started being interested in me men when I was young and lost weight the first time I was horrified I mean felt like I was going to be raped mm-hmm. and all they were saying is you look really nice or wow, you know, you, you look wonderful now that you've lost all this weight, but it was just a male attention that I wasn't my, just my body uh, being heavy already saves me from, I'd say probably like 75% of males because mm-hmm. they're looking for somebody slim or whatever, but yet that hurts me too. Yeah. Because I'm like, wait a minute, what, why am I not worthy of love? Because of what I look like, what my body looks like. So, yeah, it's a complicated thing. I think it had to do with my um, my sexual addiction, too. Because mm-hmm. I know that many, the more men that were interested in me, whether they were drunk or, um, you know, for whatever reason they uh, pursued me, I, w- I could kind of like, okay, I'm okay because 
I guess this guy will, at least will have sex with me, you know, so it must not be that bad. So, yeah, yeah, put myself in dangerous, dangerous, horrifying situations over that. And that's the body thing, too, you know, mm. that's ridiculous. Harmed my body um, from some of the practices we were doing. Mm. And it's because I wanted the acceptance. Yeah. Yeah, I. It's also, you know, interesting to me because I know that there are quite a number of people out there who enjoy people who have a bit more going on. Yeah, no, they do. There are a lot. You should see here in Mexico. Maybe that's one of the things I like about Mexico too is that it's so different. Um, actually, before, uh, can you believe that people here in Mexico, their um weight overweight uh problem hasn't hadn't started until they start drinking coke that makes entire that, sense yeah now that the whole because i'm not kidding you here they sell i've never even seen those kind of bottles in the states they have not only the um the actual size of the ones they sell in the u.s i don't know what how big they are but here they have like double the size of them you, you carry them like a big pole uh hmm. home i drink diet coke and um and it's real so sugar also it's real sugar. So, oh, my God, they're all addicted here to Coke. But anyway, um, so when I used to come over, I remember when I was heavy and younger, um, people would look at me because nobody was heavy here. They're poor. They don't have that much money and they work hard and it's hot. I don't know all the reasons why they were thin, but there wasn't that many heavy people. Mm-hmm. So they would stare at me like I was an alien. They would be even my family. My, I remember my grandmother one time. I felt something on my leg and my grandma was actually hugging my leg. She's like, you are a goddess of, um, I think she said cement or something. Cause she, my leg was, you know, probably the whole size of her Mm -hmm. body. And, um, so it used to be that way, but now there's unfortunately a lot of heavy people here now, even children because of the Coke thing, but, um, still it's, uh, accepted more. I mean, they're, they're, when we, I meet somebody and when we uh, interact, they're friendly still. And, and in uh, the U.S., I felt more judged mm. by um, even when I met new people, you know. I don't know what was true, but I had that perception that they were judging me because of my size, mm. who I hung out with and who I didn't. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, like we started with talking about your work and you, you said that you have attempted, I don't remember how many times it was, but it was multiple times. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about your journey with that? Obviously you have so much trauma that you have experienced, um, which would make sense of it, but yeah. Yeah. What I found out um, now that I'm on this side of of all of the experiences is that what suicide is, it really comes down to, because people are like, why do people die by suicide? And I can basically say, and I think I speak for many, if not all, but um, suicide is actually the lack of hope, mm-hmm. of any hope. That's why our brain, even though we're used to wanting to live, survive, even in sometimes in the act of trying to die by suicide, our, our body kicks in and tries to make, ha- help us survive. Um, so that's an innate thing, I think. But um, in our mind, in my mind, um, it was about 
things are never going to change. Even from the beginning, um, my very first attempt, I was very young. I was in my 20s. I had things going for me. What I judged to be good things, you know, I was pretty much healthy. At 20, I feel like a lot of 20-year-olds feel like they're on top of the world. You know, they're just nothing can stop them. And so I was in that um at that place where I started having my first um, suicidal thoughts, which to me were so shocking because I didn't know where they were coming from. Mm. I had never actually, I'd heard of suicide, I think on TV or on a movie or something, but in my circle, it didn't exist. Mm. Not in my religious circle, not in my uh, cultural, Mm. social. So um, to have those feelings was very shocking. Went to the medical doctor. I thought for sure it was something physical And I did have depression and um, was treated, started off on a long road of uh, trying to find the right medicine to help me with my depression. But I unfortunately did not understand that suicide and depression are not the same thing. Mm. You can be suicidal and not be depressed, or you can be depressed and not be suicidal. So even though I uh, was a medical doctor, we were addressing the depression. I had my first attempt in the first year that I'd seen a medical doctor. And why? It was because I felt like I um, I had been trying to help. I just remember that feeling of trying to help everybody in my family, not being able to uh, solve their problems and then not maybe being appreciated the way I wanted to. So I was resentful even. And then that gave me shame because I thought, why can Mother Teresa do it? And, you know, mm. she doesn't. Feel I didn't realize that you have to have your cup full first before you can help others. So um, also just was- uh, do you mind if I interject here? Oh, also, wrong. Mother Teresa had very difficult emotional times. Um, so she, I I don't remember the specifics, but, um, she, I think she had a couple of exorcisms or something like that. She had at least had one. So like she, she felt she had rough, rough, rough times. So that might be useful for you to know now is that she actually did have struggles, um, that is, that's really useful because, of course, I didn't look at any of that. I just saw her giving and giving so much love. And not that I'd compare myself to her, but I just thought, why can't I just um, give and give and not feel resentful when my family doesn't appreciate or expect something from me? Because pretty much I uh, grew into this part of um my family where I was a helper mm. and to, to the extreme of where, I mean, I'd go to sleep aches and pains all over when I was in my twenties mm. because I was cleaning till 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night, getting up at six in the morning, getting the kids ready for school, not my children, my nieces and nephews. So it was a harsh, harsh life. And I wanted to do it uh, lovingly and freely. And so when I didn't feel that, then I just thought, you know what? Um, there's no other answer. I need to leave mm. this earth. So that was my first attempt. Then what would happen is, um, since I didn't get the help I needed, but I did get when, when they used to do, and I don't know how many uh, days they do now, but at that time they did like three weeks in the psych ward mm. after an attempt. So that gave me enough out of my experience of my families, even though I was still going obsessing with it over in my mind, as far as, um, you know, what I did right or not. Um, it gave me enough distance and rest 
that when I went back, I went back because my personality is that I love people and I'm very uh, love sense of humor. So I'm, you know, kind of a positive person. So it gave me enough rest so that I could go back to that for a couple of years. Mm. Then I would get myself in situations again because of my trauma, because of who I learned to be, that I would feel, again, just depleted emotionally and physically. And then um, I'd get suicidal again because I felt like, you know, there was going to be no change to that. I'd attempt again, survive it. I mean, I really think that each of my uh, being able to survive my attempts is miraculous. Um, I don't go on and on about God because I don't even know how I feel exactly about that subject. But what I do know is that I did everything in my ability and at the end towards the fifth um i was getting pretty specific about what i was doing Mm. ensure that to make sure that i uh was able to die and um i had no effects ever of any of my attempts i'd go to the hospital the next day and one doctor said you're lying there's no way you took this Mm. he said did you vomit did you uh look because i always drank when i attempted so he said maybe in your you know drunk being drunk you dropped him or something Mm. but because you would have taken that if you didn't die you would at least be very very sick right now and never never that's why i really believe that i was meant to stay on this earth to do something because it was up to me Mm. i wouldn't be here Mm. yeah and and it's interesting you were talking about how uh dbt has been really helpful for you and it's interesting for me. Um, I learned some about DBT when I was working in the mental health field. Um, and then when I went to the psych hospital, it was pretty much nothing but DBT. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a very, uh, I get very frustrated with DBT and um, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not against it, but I have, uh, I think I really didn't like the fact that it was the only thing and yeah. that uh, one type of therapy does not work for everybody. And it was it was very much being used as this uh, sort of silver bullet sort of thing. And I'm like, I'm noticing several people in this group who are really not into this. And I know for me, I th- this doesn't work for me. And I don't like the sort of um, the idea that oh yeah, if you, if you follow these steps, if you do these things, this is gonna, you can control all of your emotions and you can control these things and then you'll all be better. So I got really frustrated and, and I think sometimes really, really get uh, irritated with a lot of um, cognitive and, and the dialectic uh, therapies. But obviously this worked really well for you and I'm yeah would you explain what it is about it that helped you so much because I I know that it's helped other people that I've interacted with so um it's just not my experience right and now that I'm like I always say over on this side of of suicide crisis um I I can totally understand that You're right. You know, there is no cookie cutter. I don't care how good it is or how many people it's helped. There is no cookie cutter for help for everybody because we're individuals. Mm. We're individual humans. We're so complicated. Look at it. It's just you and I have talked about up to now. Mm. 
so much involved in what we are and how we got here. So I understand that. But yeah, for DBT for me, you know what started it from the very start to help me? Because my family asks me this all the time. I was in therapy, um, Eden, for for sure 10, maybe 15 um, years of the time I was in the mental health or in behavioral health, um, mm. you know, system. So that's a lot of talk therapy and a lot of different therapies, CBT. And so I have opinions about everything, but about DBT, what happened from the very first day. And I say this to people, I don't even know how to spell dialectic, but what I do know about it is that when I heard Marsha Linehan's theory of you can have had all this trauma in Mm -hmm. your life, and it affected you your whole life and you can still it's you can there's a possibility of you having a life worth mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. that did it for me yeah I did it for me because I had had years of people saying either one or two things they either said forget your past mm-hmm. that's your past you're uh, an adult now take responsibility that didn't work for me I was like okay um and the second one was let's talk about your past and talk about your past and talk about your past and that one helped me in some things like in my um sexual abuse um history that helped me um like desensitize me but and understand what how it affected me but it still didn't um help me progress into mm-hmm. the life that I have today and not be suicidal and so DBT was the first therapy that I'd ever heard of. First of all, that a doctor herself said, you know what? I'm going to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I'm going through shit. That already, Mm -hmm. I had, she had all Mm -hmm. my happiness about that. Then she said that that was possible. I don't know if I believed it because I had never experienced that. But just for the first person to say, because I always heard, get off the pity pot. Mm -hmm. I thought, no, I had a crappy life and no child should have had to go through that. So if that makes me an alcoholic, if that makes me suicidal or whatever, too bad. That's how life is, you know. I I wanted people to realize and acknowledge, validate, because I knew I had it and I knew it had affected me. How could it not? And so um, that therapy for me did that for me. It mm-hmm. validated everything I had experienced. We were able to do that. And then it gave me a fresh start. Okay. That didn't work so good for you. It, it caused you to behave this way and to believe these things. Mm. Let's try it this way. Mm. See what happens. Because, you know, one of the hardest ones for me of the skills is, and to this day, I still practice and it's really difficult. And so my family's like, how did you get yourself to do that is uh, opposite action. Mm. When I'm depressed, the last thing I want to do is get out of bed mm. and go up a rainy hill um, to my therapy sessions uh, on the bus. I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so with opposite action, um, I was able to learn to put one foot right in front of the other, one foot right in front of the other. And next thing you know, I was in my therapy session, which I hated because it was group therapy. And I'm <laughs> like, that's another thing I dislike. And um, so everything, everything ended up working out for me. But I do understand that it doesn't for everybody. And now I'm way more open to hearing that. Because at first I was so, I was just yeah. a DBT dinner. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it saved your life. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, uh, one, I'm just going to say this is uh, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. And they have like DBT is certainly related to cognitive behavioral therapy, yes. but uh, it was created by someone who 
is very open about her own mental health issues. And uh, something I deeply respect about it is that it was made by someone who needed it for other people who need it. And it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, a lot of recovery where who you really need is other people who understand your experience, who, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's completely different than being treated by someone who, who is not a peer. And and I'm not against, like, obviously I've uh, worked with clients having issues that, that I didn't have. That's not a bad thing, but it's really something when a treatment has been made by someone who understands. That's exactly what, and you know, cause the, um, the founder, Marsha Linehan, she didn't, I didn't have a lot of the same experience. In fact, I don't know if I have the same diagnosis as her, but it didn't, that's not what it was about. It was more about the mm-hmm. feeling and the openness. Yeah. For a professional, even to this day for a professional, and you know, this being in the industry or in the, yeah. Um, is that it's hard for them to come out because then people mm-hmm. will judge whether they're competent or not to help somebody. Mm-hmm. But in her case, it just ended up working out exactly. I just felt so drawn to it. And I think that's one of the things that helped me continue the process, even when I, it was difficult and I didn't want to anymore because it was a year long. And I remember many, many times going, mm-hmm. okay, I'm done. Hmm totally different. And, um, but then just remembering, you know, that she herself went through it and says that at the end of it, I'm going to feel better. And that isn't what ended up happening. Mm. I know for me, when I was in the hospital, although overall it drove me crazy. Um, I guess maybe, maybe I shouldn't use that exact phrase for this. It, um, I did not, I did not like it. Um, and and many things were not helpful to me, but the idea of radical acceptance, um, which is where you you really look at your life and you say, okay, there are things I can control and things I can't control, and the things that I can't control, I'm going to have to accept that that's there, and and all I can do is is control my own self and the way I respond and the way I take this in. And for me to understand that and say, okay, I'm, I'm trans and a lot of people are not going to respond well to that. And I can't change that, but I can change the way that I respond to it. Um, I think was massive for me. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I agree. Um, radical acceptance. And and then it even goes further. It's not only accepting it, which is so helpful, but in radical acceptance in, as a DBT skill, they actually talked about going into it, like leaning in to things that um, are difficult for us and mm-hmm. challenges. And I had never heard that before. If anything, you know, I try to avoid, avoid, avoid. <laughs> and that brought me a lot of problems. So, yeah, the skills really, I don't know why specifically, but spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but um, helped me, guide me to having a better life. Well, I'm very glad. Me I, too. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have met you. I know. 
you know, I wouldn't have experienced all the positive and wonderful and beautiful things in my life and meeting people like yourself and having this conversation unless I had recovery on board and um, in this case, DBT. Mm. So um, I'm so grateful, so grateful mm. that I get another chance to to experience that because now I see that human life is worth living where I did, I wouldn't have said that in any of my um, situations that I was in the, in the past. In fact, I, I used to say that all the time. I used to say, um, life sucks. There's miserable. I don't remember what word I used and then you die. Mm. But um, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like, yes, there can be some very painful things in our life, but there can also be some very beautiful human things um, that we experience, that I've experienced. Yeah, I think it's that match of being honest about the pain and also being honest about the hope. Yes. That is essential because you could focus on the pain, which just sort of leads to despair and stuff like suicidality or some other form of self-destruction or destruction in general, or you can pretend that everything's okay. And uh, you know that that doesn't work. And I know that that doesn't work, but, you know, trying, uh, trying to blend in, trying to say, everything's fine, nothing to see here. And neither of those work. And, and, you know, it's so frustrating when you talk to someone about having mental health concerns or, or depression or something like that. And they say, well, you know, things are just fine or like, you know, some, some sort of positive thing that helps them sleep at night. So you have to have both. Yeah, I totally agree. That's the conclusion I've come to now in my life is that you have to, you have to experience. I didn't always understand that. You know, a lot of people said you need to see the darkness to see the stars and, and, uh, you know, phrases like that. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know. I definitely wouldn't have chosen the trauma that I went through. Um, but I didn't have that choice. You know, I went through it. And so what's the other, what can come out of it positive. And so now I'm able to see that. Yep. As a human being, we we have both. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, what you do in your work. Uh, obviously, I know the basic, the basic thing that you do, but there's a lot involved. There is and there isn't. You know, um, it's so interesting. I've have been able to speak now. Basically, it's just telling my story. Um, 30 years of being in the behavioral health or just mm-hmm. medical system and how I survived it. Um, and specifically with my suicidality, uh, suicidal crisis, um, but in a lot of different formats. Like this podcast, this is um, probably my like fourth maybe I've done of interviews on pad- podcasts, but I've gone everywhere from uh, webinars to speaking in public um, in different areas. And then I got a chance to speak at the White House. So that was a big, Ooh. big deal for this Mexican huh. um, person. But yeah, so that was huge. 
Um, and through all kinds of formats, you know, through uh, Facebook, I've talked at Facebook, at conferences, and to all kinds of people. I remember my very first time that I spoke publicly was uh, to 100 doctors. And when they introduced themselves and we went around the room, um, it took over an hour for them to all introduce themselves because they had so many letters behind their name. And I thought, how in the hell am I going to introduce myself? Mm. I mean, I don't have anything I can say besides the fact that I'm a survivor, you know. But it ended up being the coolest thing in the world because that's what I said. I said the most wonderful thing is that even though I don't have all those letters behind my name, we're all here for the same purpose, Mm. to save lives and if i can put in my you know contribution and you guys put in yours then then it's gonna work it's we're gonna do what we came here for Mm -hmm. so um yeah it's just and the reason why i say it's not that complicated because even though it takes a lot of effort less and less the more i do it um on my part to share especially some of the really um what some people might consider shameful or um details negative details it's easy for me because it's my life it's like somebody asking you um you know what did you do yesterday i can basically i don't even take notes or write anything basic usually for my 90 minute keynote i had to write some because i'm like mm-hmm. what do i say for 90 minutes even though i talk a lot um i wanted to say the most encouraging the most helpful things but um i basically don't even take notes uh for most of the speaking i do because it's about my life So I just ask who the audience is going to be, what specifically the person who has asked me to speak, especially if I'm being um, paid, uh, what they thought Mm. I should speak about or what about my story um, they thought was important for Mm. their audience. So I do some prep in that way, but basically it's not that hard because um, I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth about my past Mm. and, um, So, yeah, and I enjoy it because, like I said, I'm a person who loves to give. I'm a person who likes to help. So just the thought that I could help one person, one person that's listening to me in any way, shape or form, I'm already happy. I already did my my job. I already did my whatever I'm going to get out of it because um, that's my purpose Mm. is to help. Mm. So, yeah, that's my work. I have uh, started to add this question in, which is what are, because we, we talk a lot about the difficulty with our bodies. What are some ways that you have had really positive experiences with your body or, or ideas that you have of how that could be possible? That's a really hard question for me, Eden, because I don't haven't had very many. Mm. Um, one of the things I try to focus on is I heard somewhere in all the self-help I've tried to read and, and do stuff on is um, to be grateful for my body, what my body has done for me. Mm. Because despite all the things <laughs> I've done to it, it does not treat me that way. I usually don't get sick very often. And um, I do have enjoyment. I love to swim. Absolutely. I blame that on being a Pisces. Um, so the fact that I can walk, I have family members um, who are now bedridden, but at one point uh, wheelchair bound. And um, 
And especially this one sister-in-law, I just, it crushes me because at 35, she uh, ended up being in a wheelchair and she was this vibrant, just amazing human being. And to have her limited um, has really shown me how grateful I am that I'm not because um, I walk slowly, but I still can walk. I can get up. I can pretty much uh, think of what I'd like to do in a day and still be able to do it. So I'm grateful for that, for my body. And I've really tried to get to the point where I um, I look at it and I'm able to accept it. I'm still not there all the way. I prefer to be dressed and I dress in a very specific way to minute, minimize the things I don't like and mm. accentuate the things that I'm okay with. And so that's a work in progress, you know, mm-hmm. for me. I just feel like now at least I feel like I'm an artwork or I'm – Nobody's like me. So um, I can appreciate things more and more mm. about me, my body. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have that many that I can look back on and um, and have. But I'm creating them yeah. as we go. We went swimming yesterday and I was a little fish in the water. Mm. Love, love floating, just looking up at the sky, thinking, you know, how expansive it is. And there's so much still I could do even at this age. So, Yeah. I think I've just started asking that question, not to sort of push positivity where it isn't, but I don't know if you've done this before, but the way that you phrase searches on Google, uh, it will affect what you get. Right. So if you, um, if you say this thing, not true or this thing true, you'll get very, you know, you'll get all the ones that, that are answering uh, the what you seem to want, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to just sort of focus on the problems and, and things like that. And I do that all the time. And, and I'm not against that. As you were saying earlier, you have experienced trauma and you're not going to hide that away. It's your life. But to remind, to like reframe what this could be or you know how you could view it mm-hmm. I think is helpful mm-hmm. it is I like that question I'm glad that you added it because also I think it's good to remember the positive things that you have had in your life like I know that when I was young before I started with a weight issue um, which was about 12 because I weighed about 125 when I was about 12 and that was to my mom like horrifying mm-hmm. she was just like oh, I cannot believe you weigh 125 I wish I could weigh that one of my fingers could weigh that today. And um, so I remember having a very, I was very mischievous and loving and happy kid. And so my body was a big um, fun thing then because I could run everywhere. I tried to do everything my brother did. And uh, I was a tomboy and uh, very happily one. So I think that it's good to have those positive thoughts. So I'm glad that you uh, included this, that question. Mm. It's helpful. And the the last question I usually ask is just, uh, is there anything else that you want to share or that you, yeah, that you want to say? I guess just basically that I'm so happy and excited that you are doing this podcast because I think as human beings, for me, from my perspective, we're like a whole world, you know, that's mm-hmm. even a saying, there's a whole world in us. 
and so complicated. So many things make up our our being, and um, it's nice to be able to see that. I think um, all all the different things that make up a person and why they are where they're at and and who they feel they are and want to show the world. So I appreciate I appreciate that you have done that in this podcast and that I'm able to share my truth how no matter how difficult it has been for me to do that even though now it's easier now that that's my actual profession but um so yeah I'm just really grateful I'm glad that you and I met mm-hmm. and that we can share our worlds because um not only does it expand our own truth and what you know what we experience in life but it's just a beautiful thing I think that um as humans we're social beings and so it's just really nice that I got to meet another social being that um I just really enjoy so yeah mm-hmm. thanks this experience thank you and human beings are fascinating and surprising and beautiful and i'm really grateful for our friendship and as we've gotten to know each other i think i was realizing in this i was like oh man i need to learn a lot more about diana um yes and i uh noticed the same thing as we were speaking, you were asking me things. I thought there's so much more about him that I want to know. And so I'd like to interview you, but <laughs> I, I realized that in this case, it was about me. So thank you for thank doing you. that. But I'm glad that we have the opportunity to continue to get to know each other. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Let's talk about something scintillating. Uh, <laughs> My whole life is scintillating. Well, of course. No, I'm kidding. I did have an interview just yesterday for another podcast. What is this? You're very popular. Yes, so I didn't realize it in Spanish. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>